You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. reading in case i got bored hello and welcome to tfm's local books and comic show for star trek and i'm just one of the hosts here matthew rushing and i'm so excited that we've got back both casey and jonathan because we have a monster show for everybody a monster <laughs> i don't know although ironically it, i don't think there's any monsters in the book i don't so. think there is no. <laughs> are those are will we call those like uh big rhinoceros sized spider things that chase seven around oh, like monsters true. sure like, yeah. the monstrous yeah. right and, yeah, and i mean I come on the evil dude in the book is is quite well, he's monstrous. a monster well he's yeah. a monster, he's a, he's a monster. Yes. Mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Oh, goodness. Oh, well, it's it's great to be back uh, here. And we I'm very excited that we have some book news. And mm-hmm. and so, uh, Casey, uh, you actually put this on the outline. So first, we've got a brand new book here coming out in the Strange New Worlds era with Una McCormick. Yep, we've got uh, in September 2024, September 24th, 2024, we've got Strange New Worlds Asylum by Una McCormick. And so it's uh, great to get a new Strange New Worlds book before we, uh, since we don't really know when we're going to get a new season of that yet. Um, but this one takes place, uh, or part of it takes place uh, kind of a little bit further back in time. And I'll uh, read the blurb here for us so that we all get uh, even more excited. When Una Chin Riley and Christopher Pike meet at Starfleet Academy after one of his lectures, they immediately become friends. A stellar student, Una is the poster girl of her class, and Pike is determined to become a Starfleet captain with his own ship, rhetorically assembling his dream crew. As their friendship evolves, Pike also suspects Una is involved with a Yuxana, a Chionian cultural minority, who are seeking asylum in Federation space, leading to more questions than answers. 25 years later, Una and Pike are working together on the USS Enterprise to settle a Chionian trade agreement when a pro-Huxana saboteur launches a terrorist attack. When the suspect is taken into custody for interrogation and is discovered to have a history with Una, her past associations resurface, threatening to expose a secret she's been harboring all these years. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. So kind of got some uh, uh, Illyrian kind of vibes there, maybe. Like, yeah. you know, maybe that, that past is going to come in. But yeah, very much looking forward to uh, anything by Una McCormick, to be honest. But uh, And I believe yeah. this will be her first time writing for the character of Una. I think you're right. That's pretty that cool. That she's named. Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. Uh, the namesake. How many, how many secrets can Una have? 
It's I mean, the character, not, not Una McCormick, who I'm sure is full <laughs> well, of secrets. Uh, but... <laughs> That's gonna be so hard to talk about when when it comes out to differentiating between the two of them. We're gonna have to just call her number one the whole number time. Number one. Wait, are we <laughs> calling Una McCormick number one? <laughs> I mean, she is kind of number one in our hearts, right? So yes. She is, yes. <laughs> well, Jonathan, we also have a uh, Picard book news, and so uh, what what's coming out there in November? So they uh, this is actually a a printing of an audio drama. The uh, the the printing script. This the uh, the audio drama was Picard No Man's Land, which was by uh, Kirsten Beyer and Mike Johnson, which released back in I want to say March of 2022, somewhere on somewhere in 2022, something like that. Um, and uh, it was for a long time just the audio drama, and I believe they got um, uh, the actual actors uh, from yes. the series mm-hmm. uh, to do the the audio for it. Uh, before it was just the audio, but now we're getting the actual print script. So it is in script form, so it doesn't read like a novel, but it is the script of the of of the thing. So it, it, it's good for those of us who can't, or rather, like me, won't or listen to, <laughs> to audio stuff um, uh, like that. We can actually read the uh, the physical physical copy now. And for the collectors in us, there's something to put up on our shelves now. Yes, yes, yes. Although yeah. the problem is, it's a Picard book. But it's going to be only in paperback, so it's not going to fit with the other Picard hardcovers. Uh, lame, lame. Because in it's, Star Wars, they they do the printings of the audio dramas, but in hardcover. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised that they're not doing the same thing. But I guess it's probably because of cost, and so. And it's just 112 pages. It's yeah. really oh, short. It's like even the even the Star Wars ones are pretty short. You can read them in like a couple hours, but this one is even shorter than that. So it probably yeah. just for sure was not worth the the price tag it would put because it's already like $15 or $14 in paperback it would probably be around 20 if they had to do hardcover and that that'd just be too much yeah no that makes sense so now i think it's exciting that we're getting both of these kind of things coming out and of course you know we've got Dayton Ward's book as well as Greg Cox's book coming out this year so it's it, it's nice to see that we're at least getting some movement on on Star Trek i think it is going to be kind of fascinating because you know, Discovery's ending. Uh, season three of Strange New Worlds is filming now. Picard is over, and they have still not announced Star Trek Legacy, which to their detriment and their stupidity. Yeah. Um, yes, that's right. I said stupidity. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't really know exactly what they're going to do. You know, um, we've gotten more Star Trek books, but we're, you know, we're still in this place where, you know, we're getting maybe three if you're lucky four a year Mm -hmm. so i don't know um and it seems to be all based on what and possibly they might be doing with star trek in general uh when it comes to screen uh and so with two of the shows ending and then one still going you know uh, it makes me wonder what they're going to do with star trek in general um because it, it seems like there had been a resurgence, and no, I don't mean the video game and or comic <laughs> series based off of it, uh, of Star Trek. But it also seems like maybe Star- is Star Trek dying? I don't know. Um, and uh, Bite if they're- your tongue. <laughs> I mean, let's just say, again, if they're smart, right, they're doing Star Trek Legacy. Yeah. Um, I-, I will say, to, if we're looking at it on a positive side, in 2022, we only got two novels produced. In 2023, we only got two. 
In 2024, we're getting four. So if you look at it that way, we're getting double the amount that we got last year. So this is true. Hopefully, I'm hoping that this is a trajectory upwards uh, for future years, and that it doesn't stagnate or go down again. And and they're waiting longer before they they announce them too. I mean, we just got the announcement, you know, here in February. It might have been in January about a book coming out in September. I mean, that's not a huge runway of time, mm-hmm. you know, um, and so. And and hopefully they stay on the schedule because I know in the past some of the books I, I think it was um, High Country was one yeah of them High Country like push, delay push. like there were some delays in some of the books you know so they they kind of ended up in the following year so I think we were supposed to have three books one year and and actually at Firemall that we're going to be talking about today might have been one I think it was originally supposed to be released it in was, November it was February from when the first announcement. Well, then I'm, yeah, there, there was another book in the past, some, some right, other yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of things, Casey, you're right. I mean, a lot of things ended up getting delayed because of all the stuff that happened with COVID. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you had uh, the printing supply issues. chain issues with yeah. the printings yeah. and everything. So, yes, a lot of stuff ended up getting delayed. And then, kind of, of course, a lot of stuff ended up getting delayed just because they didn't quite know exactly what I think they were doing with Star Trek. I mean, gosh, mm. how many years did it take for us to get the Kelvinverse timeline novels that finally oh, came yeah. out? You know, so, I mean, it, it's just, it, it's it's been a lot. So hopefully, you know, I, I think we're all hoping we'll get more novels. But thankfully, we still have plenty of novels to be able to cover. But even more importantly, I'm so excited that Waiting mm-hmm. in the Wings here... To talk about his brand new book, Firewall, is David Max. So, guys, I think we should stop just, you know, chewing the fat and head on over and talk to David. <laughs> we are so excited to be back here uh, with a brand new book, uh, which means we've got one of the authors with us. And as always, and <laughs> David, nobody can see this, but he's showing us the book right now, Uh David, it is so good, one, to have you back in Literary Treks, and of course, to celebrate the brand new book, Star Trek Picard Firewall. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here. Awesome, man. Awesome. So, well, first, uh, I, this is something I, I f- totally forgot to even put on the outline, but um, I, I'm always really interested uh, the background information of just kind of where the genesis of this story uh, and kind of filling in the storyline for seven and nine kind of came from. Well, it originated with a simple request from my editors. Tell the story of how, when, and why seven joined the Fenris Rangers. And as for the details, how it all came together, it started with going through all of the material established about this in the canon. And there's very little. It's just a few lines of dialogue here and there, and it requires a bit of parsing, a bit of uh, creative interpretation. Uh, at one point, Seven talks about how you know she tried to get into Starfleet. She was rebuffed. Her application to the Academy rejected. That Admiral Janeway put her career on the line to try and get her in, uh, and that failed. And then finally, you know, Seven just got fed up with it, and as she puts it, at that point, I went full Ranger. And the way she phrased it, and that was, I believe, in a season three episode, season two or season three episode, as she's explaining this to somebody, uh, it makes it sound very clearly like it was a cause and effect. Because of this, this. I did this because this was done to me. 
And it seemed to me that these are the sort of things that would have happened very soon after Voyager's return from the Delta Quadrant. It's not the sort of thing where you're going to wait six, seven, eight years to sort this out. This is all going to happen within a very short span of time after Voyager comes home. And so that was how I chose the time period for the main body of the book, which is mostly set in 2381. And uh, there's a little bit of a preamble before that in 2380. There's a framing sequence set in 2386, uh, which shows Seven as a ranger in an environment and in a sort of a, a state of mind that's maybe a little more familiar to the readers. If they've seen Picard, then the version of Seven as a ranger that they'll see in the first and last chapter, the framing sequence of the book, that'll be very familiar. And that, that sequence, those two chapters are there to ground the book in the version of Picard that viewers are familiar with, because then we're going back in time about 20 years to basically what is a sequel to Voyager to the Voyager Endgame finale. And, uh, that's where we're sort of picking up is, you know, what happened after Voyager came home and how did that drive seven to join the Rangers? One of the, uh, the big things about this is, and, and this is so interesting, I think for all of uh, you writers now, you know, you'd spent so much time in a universe you guys got to create. Um, and now we're writing in the continuation of TNG, but in the Picard timeline, which is, very different than the one that got set up. And so I'd love to hear just about the the difference of, of writing in the Picard timeline, because uh, a lot of things are, are very different, especially with the approach to the Federation and Starfleet. Um, in, in many ways, it is, you know, what people call uh, Deep Space Nine, which is darker, grittier. And, and sometimes it seems a little bit less hopeful than than the universe that we had spent a lot of time in previously uh, known as, you know, the lit verse. I would agree with that. I think the vision that we see of the Federation and Starfleet and the people who constitute the, all of that uh, in Picard, we have a much more cynical view of them in Picard than I think we did in TNG. Part of that, I think, can be blamed on the events of Deep Space Nine. The Dominion War certainly made society, made Federation society a lot more callous. But I think then it also made them a tad more paranoid. And what then ramped that up was the events in the movie First Contact, which is set in 2373, where the Borg pretty much walked right up to Earth and knocked and, you know, the people of Earth don't remember it, but, you know, the Borg sent a little, you know, sphere back in time and assimilated Earth and wiped out the Federation. The Enterprise crew managed to fix it, sure, but by, you know, uh, by, by a sea hair. So they're, uh, the people of Earth are a little bit shell-shocked, and they are certainly going to uh, have had their nativist tendencies triggered. They've had their tribalism triggered, uh, which is why, you know, for instance, with the synth rebellion that you're going to see in 2386 after the events on Mars, uh, or I can't remember if that was 2384 or 2385, but somewhere in there, there's going to be this whole mess on Mars. And the people of Earth are just ready to write off synths, ready to write off synthetic artificial, you know, life forms 
entirely. It's a remarkably callous thing to do. So I was working with that mindset that people of Earth are sort of in this kind of a, a mindset. So when uh, Voyager comes home and Seven is reintroduced into human society, they don't want really much to do with her. They don't trust her. They don't like her. When they look at her, they see a Borg. This is a culture that has been traumatized by the Borg. And because of Janeway destroying the Borg trans uh, warp network, uh, they have every reason to think that the Borg are on the warpath against them. And suddenly Janeway shows up with this ex-Borg who still has significant Borg implants, a lot of Borg tech inside her body, including nanoprobes, which can do all kinds of crazy stuff. Not to mention a record of disciplinary problems aboard Voyager, including attempts to seize control of the ship by force on more than one occasion. None of this looks good to Starfleet. doesn't matter how many times Janeway tries to put a, you know, a, a nice bow on it and say, yeah, well, she's better now. That's not going to fly. What Starfleet Command is seeing and what the Federation government is seeing is a major potential security risk. Uh, how do you know she hasn't just been infiltrating Voyager, uh, developing social skills that will let her walk into Starfleet Command and assimilate all of our tech right from the source? Uh, how do we know that you know this is not the beginning of a, a stealth infiltration? They don't. And because of the events of First Contact, they're very paranoid about this. So Seven gets basically hit with a lot of racism, a lot of fear, um, and it doesn't help that she's chosen to keep her Borg designation, seven of nine, because here they are, you know, she's been legally dead 25 years at this point. Uh, so they're trying to resurrect her as Annika Hansen. And now they have her saying, well, I don't want these papers. I'm seven of nine. And the Federation is saying, well, according to our records, you're Annika Hansen. And so they're basically dead naming her. Uh, and they're refusing to respect the identity that she has chosen for herself. And between that and the just the racism and the fear she's going to be getting and dealing with every day from every person she meets and interacts with on Earth, including her own Aunt Irene, who's trying her best to welcome her home, but flinches every time Seven hugs her because the, the implants touch Irene's face. There's just, there's nobody here to welcome her. And all of her friends on Voyager are gone. Everybody's scattered when they came home. Janeway's the only one who's still around, and she's busy at Starfleet Command. Her relationship with Ch Chakotay fell apart because he got promoted to take command of the Protostar, which is a major classified top-secret project that they can't let her anywhere near. They can't even tell her the name of it. And this breeds all kinds of envy and resentment and just poisons their relationship. Tom and Bellana go off to have their kid. Harry Kim finally gets promoted and goes to another ship. Tuvok goes into Starfleet security. Everybody's gone. The doctor's off on his speaking tour for holographic sentient rights. So the whole sentient, uh, the, the whole emotional support network that Seven has relied on for years on Voyager is suddenly gone at the moment she needs it most. And she's alone. And she's in a culture that she was told would welcome her, and it doesn't. She's on a planet she was told she'd recognize as home. She doesn't. She feels alone. She feels isolated, persecuted. And although she says that what she's worried about is, you know, all these efforts that Janeway is making on her behalf, she doesn't want Janeway to 
trash her career on her behalf. What Seven is really dealing with is the fact that she's feeling humiliated. She's feeling embarrassed. And the longer this goes on and the more uh, Janeway tries to help her, the more humiliated Seven becomes at the fact that she's unhelpable and that it's uh, tarnishing the, the, you know, the reputation of her dear friend. So her need to get out, although she says it's about protecting Janeway's rep, it's really just because there's only so much humiliation and degradation a person can be expected to take before they say, screw you, I'm leaving. Well, Seven's not someone, she was kind of almost like a Vulcan character for us when we were on Voyager, and we saw more of her humanity start to come out as the seasons went on on that show, but by the time the show ended, she was still very much, you know, kind of her Borg-like self in a lot of ways, but by the time we get to see her in Picard, she's very much changed, she's very much more in tune with her emotions, and we got to see that in, in this story, too, she because of all the things you were just talking about, like she takes a pretty fast journey to become kind of jaded herself. And um, like you said, embarrassed, you know, and it, it just her not even finding her place in this world. She's actually back to where she was when she was taken out of the collective. Um, just wondering if you could talk about kind of bringing those emotions out of seven kind of more than we really saw, you know, at that point in Voyager when she would have been returning to earth. Well, in that sense, Firewall is a coming-of-age story for Seven. It's uh, basically the story of a woman who, although she's physically an adult, 32 years old, she's lost all of the years of socialization that she should have had. Her childhood, her adolescence, and her young adulthood were all stolen from her by the board. And she really only had about four years to kind of get socialized and you know, reacclimated to human society by the crew of Voyager before they reintroduced her to earth. And then suddenly everything they told her went out the window. So when I think she, when she gets out of there, what she's realizing is she can never be the best version of herself. If she stays on earth, the people here won't let her be the best version of herself. She's always going to be carrying around the baggage of everybody else's prejudice, everybody else's fear uh, everyone's going to sort of dump all this stuff onto her, whether she wants it or deserves it or not. So she's got to get out of there. And like many people do, uh, she's you know prone to sort of seek out environments and situations that at first feel familiar, that are comforting to her on some level, even if she doesn't fully understand why, which is why she finds herself like a year later working a menial job at the ass end of uh, you know, an assembly line in a mostly automated factory that even she realizes feels a lot like being back inside a Borg cube. And it's because there is for her a strange comfort in being anonymous, being hidden, being back out of sight, surrounded by beautifully running machinery that doesn't ask questions and doesn't have complicated emotions. This is a safe space for her. This is where she retreats to. And her social life is very much run the same way. She's yearning for contact, yearning for intimacy, trying to find a place where she'll be accepted, someone who will accept her for her, but she doesn't know how to get there. She, at one point in the book, likens it to, like, for instance, likens the, the flirtation that's going ar around her in a bar as everybody else is speaking a language that she has never been taught. And she's trying to pick it up from context, 
but she just can't. She's she's got half of it. She's got the vocabulary, but she doesn't have the syntax. You know, she she can't quite put it together. But she finds solace in strange places, like in the mosh pit. This is a place where she feels, oddly enough, safe, accepted, because she's here with all the other freaks, the other outcasts, the other sort of people who are existing in the liminal areas of society. Uh, and at this point, her entire identity is liminal, which basically means transitional. She's in a transitional state between who she was before and who she wants to become. And part of what she's also dealing with is the struggle between what she wants or thinks she wants and trying to figure out what it is she actually needs. She's pursuing what she thinks she wants, which is a place in Starfleet, her Federation citizenship recognized, uh, you know, this is what she thinks she wants. What she doesn't realize is that what she really needs is to find a place where she is accepted as herself, uh, where she can basically be wanted, be needed, be welcomed uh, by people who are not going to judge her. She needs a newfound family. And again, like most people, uh, either you hated the family you grew up with and so unconsciously or consciously you seek to create a different family unit when you grow up, or you like the family unit that you had for the most part when you were young. And in some way, again, consciously or unconsciously, you seek to replicate it as an adult. In this case, Seven tries to replicate it. She doesn't realize that's what she's doing. But once she winds up with the Rangers, pretty much from the moment she meets Ranger Keon Harper, she begins rebuilding her found family. Instead of a surrogate mother figure like she had in Janeway, she now has a surrogate father figure in Harper. Instead of the crew of the Voyager as her brothers and sisters, now she has the other Rangers. And most importantly, something she didn't really find uh, on Voyager, partly because she wasn't ready. Once she joins the Rangers, she also meets the first great love of her life, which is Ellery Cade. So basically her life starts coming together. She's found this sort of group of happy Robin Hood style misfit law enforcement agents out on the edge of Federation space out by the Romulan neutral zone who are doing a job. Nobody else seems to want to do. And suddenly she's with her people. She's with people who are interested in justice in fighting the bad guys. Even if you have to use unconventional means to do it. Uh, she's found people who are ready to accept her, for her. And she realizes eventually that that's what she needed all along. Uh, so that, that's where she's going. And what's happening, as you pointed out with your question, uh, this change in her uh, ability to feel and express emotion, her ability to empathize with others, to have a theory, an emotional theory of mind of other people. This is beginning to open up for her. She's, she's working on it. She's trying to get there. Uh, but part of what she's grappling with is that she's holding herself back because of emotions like fear, guilt uh, over, you know, what she was used to do as a Borg drone. And the point where it all breaks, what, what breaks the dam is when Ellery Cade brings her to the scene of the mass grave. Uh, spoiler alert, by the way. Um, but essentially, you know, she has seen all that she seven. We've already seen this in Voyager. She hates injustice. She hates uh, seeing bullies, you know, uh, hurt the weak. 
it pisses her off. There's a, a, a very deep-seated need for justice in her. And when she sees the injustice happening on Soroya, it really sort of brings to the fore her, her desire to fight against it. But she doesn't understand the true scope of it. So that's why Ellery shows it to her. And this is the moment where, you know, confronted with this gorge, this dry riverbed, essentially, that for kilometers along is filled with the desiccated corpses and skeletons uh, of 80,000 people murdered by the warlord Kogish. And they've just been left out in the sun to bleach and, and turn to dust. This is the moment that breaks the barrier between her and her human empathy. And it breaks it all at once at like the worst possible moment. This is essentially like going to the scene of a Nazi concentration camp. And that's where you learn what empathy feels like. What a moment to learn that. Uh, and it's one of those things where, you know, she collapses to her knees. You know, she her hands sort of fall onto the bones that crumble to dust underneath. And now she's got this greasy, dusty ash all over her hands like blood. And it's like this thing where she suddenly has to confront who and what she is and what she was used to do. She has to ask herself, is this the kind of monster that I was? Is this what I am? And she's grappling with this. And then, you know, the, the empathy just starts to come in waves and it grows exponentially. She empathizes with the one life in front of her taken and realizing this one life is as complex as mine. And now it's snuffed out. But if that's true of the one, then it's true of 10, but that means it's true of a hundred, a thousand, a million, and it all hits her. And that's when basically, you know, the, the great Hoover dam that holds back seven from her emotions that has separated her from her emotions for years just comes down. It just disintegrates. And it's lucky for her that Ellery Cade is there to basically help her out of a panic attack, to walk her back from hyperventilating, to calm her down before she, you know, panics herself into a freaking cardiac arrest. Um, but this is the moment where Seven's life changes and she finds her mission, which is the bastards who did this, who snuffed out all these beautiful lives, I'm going to hunt this son of a bitch down. This is the moment she finds purpose. She finds meaning in her life. She's got a direction now. And she's got people who are willing to help her get there. This is the beginning of her journey. You talked about uh, how the, there's basically two families. The old family with Voyager and the new family with the, the Rangers. And with her old family, you mentioned you know they're all scattered around. But there is one member of her old family that we do get a little bit of in the book. And that's Janeway. And uh, I, I really liked it because Janeway felt like an anchor in the story that she, you get to see the Starfleet perspective, which is the traditional Star, Star Trek perspective. And so she was able to, even though she's not throughout the book, she's in it enough that you see how Starfleet is handling things. So uh, how did that, was that always in the, the plan for the novel or was that something that came out when you needed to, that anchor for it? It was always part of the plan. Uh, I knew from the moment I went into this that it, while it was primarily going to be about Seven, you can't tell this kind of story about Seven without Janeway. Janeway is, in many ways, not just her mentor, um, but a surrogate mother figure. She is 
Seven's anchor in this world. She is, Janeway is the reason that Seven was given a chance. The whole reason Seven wasn't written off and just pushed out an airlock is because Janeway believed in her. Janeway was ready to stake everything on, I think, it doesn't matter that she's been a Borg drone for over 18 years. I think she can come back. I think she, we can help her find her way back to humanity. And I'm willing to gamble everything on it. And that gamble very nearly, you know, went wrong on a few occasions, but Janeway still did not give up. And by the time they're done, you know, by the time they've made it home and suddenly Starfleet and the Federation are in panic, you know, racism mode, uh, this is deeply upsetting to Janeway because she really believed that she was bringing Seven back to better opportunities, to a better future. And now suddenly, you know, Starfleet and the Federation aren't living up to what she sold to Seven as a vision of the future. So I always planned on it being there. But then there's also the fact that what the story is also about is, again, this is a part of the classic structure of the Bildungsroman, the coming of age tale. The child character, in this case, Seven, has to break away from the parent. It's about the character, the main character, going out into the world, defining themselves, finding their own moral code, their own approach to life. And at some point, severing that bond of, you know, sort of connection or obedience to the parental figure uh, and saying, you know, that's your way of living. It's not my way of living. And it's only when we do that on some level, maybe not quite this dramatic, but on some level, we all go through this in the transition from adolescence to adulthood and independence. There's always going to be that moment where maybe your parents don't think you're quite doing the right thing, but they've realized they have to step back and let you go and let you do what you're going to do. And it's also a frightening moment, you know, for a young adult to realize this is the moment when you're on your own. The moment you step out that door this time, you're going out to your life and now suddenly you've got to find a job and a place to live and you got to figure out how you're getting from place to place. And now you're responsible for every moment of your life and all of your actions. The, the whole period of being in the nest is gone. The safety net is gone. It's you and the universe now. Good luck. Uh, we've all been through that in some way. So I think that that's one of the more relatable aspects of the story, but that's what seven has to go through. She's got to make this uh, severance bet uh, between her and Janeway, but she doesn't want to lose the love that's between them. She doesn't want to lose the emotional bond that they have, but they are coming to a fundamental problem where seven sees value in the Fenris Rangers. She sees good in them and she sees herself fitting in with them and wanting to remain part of them. And Janeway doesn't see the Rangers the same way. She's got a different uh, ideological opinion of them because of how she was raised, because of what she believes in, and because of what she serves. And this becomes the main point of friction between her and Seven. And it really, in the end, comes down to, you know, as you see at the end of the book, uh, when the decision is irrevocably made and Janeway says to Seven, you know, I understand what you're saying, you know, why you want to be there, but you've got to know, I, I can't condone this. And that's when seven has to turn it around and sort of reframe it for Janeway by saying, 
I don't need you to condone my actions. I just need you to trust me. And that's the moment when Janeway realizes, you know, essentially my little girl is all grown up. She has made her own way. She's made her own choice. She's asking me to trust her moral and ethical judgment and not substitute mine for it. And that's when she's able to realize, yes, that moment has come. And she says, always, always seven. I, I trust you. And it's symbolized at the end of the book, again, spoiler, uh, when basically Janeway says, you know, uh, they're, they're signing off and seven is you know going to say, you know, be, take, you know, take care, Admiral. And she says, call me Catherine. And it's that moment where now they're on a first name basis. They're not in a, you know, a hierarchical relationship anymore of say surrogate mother and surrogate child. They are now two adults on equal footing in the universe, both with agency and their own point of view, bonded by love, but also, you know, operating out of mutual respect as equals. And that's the the path of growth for their relationship in the book. One of the the things that I was thinking of too in that in the storyline that, that you have with, with Janeway is it really comes to represent as well. And, and it's not as much Janeway, of course, it's really Starfleet. Uh, it represents the way in which uh, bur- bureaucracy and politics really get in the way of our best ideals sometimes. True. Um, and um, I, I was really struck by that because I think it's a really poignant statement um, and it's a very um, timeless statement. Um, that we have to be so careful that what we really truly say we believe in and the things that we that we are at our best selves can get ameliorated and destroyed in a lot of ways when we get too wrapped up in things like politics and and specifically bureaucracy, which we, we see a lot of that here in this book when it comes to especially the reaction to seven of nine and the reaction to this sector of space with everything that's going on with the Romulans and using it as an excuse to why we're not responsible for that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was a little bit of that sort of argument of what happens when the crisis du jour suddenly distracts, you know, your attention. Suddenly you've put all your resources on this one problem, but to do that, you have finite resources. Putting them all here to deal with this emergent problem means that a lot of a lot of other areas that were depending on your help are now sort of left in the wind. They're left to twist because suddenly the NGOs and the indirect Starfleet support that was there, sort of keeping, you know, it was basically that was the rusty wire that was holding in the cork. Uh, that was holding in like, you know, just the frothy mess of chaos. Well, the once that goes away, chaos is out and on the loose. And that's what happens in, in the Kira sector. Once the crisis on Romulus is understood to be what it is, uh, and the scope of it is seen, suddenly everybody is shifting all their resources toward trying to deal with the crisis that's emerging on Romulus. But that means that places like the Kiris sector, uh, which are sort of in this nebulous, unclaimed frontier territory where the Federation, the Klingon Empire, and the Romulan Star Empire and the Romulan Neutral Zone all sort of meet in this one little area of slightly unclaimed, unmarked space near the Azure Nebula, 
and this is basically you know it's like a, it's not, it's like a weird no man's land. It's and like it's, the Bermuda Triangle. A little bit. <laughs> Things it's just get lost. That, if ships don't just vanish, it's more like a, the tri-border area where Brazil, I believe, Paraguay, and I think it's Argentina meet. I think those are the three countries. I'd have to double check. Uh, but there's this area in South America known as the tri-border, and it's a remarkably politically unstable place. It's dangerous. It's known for black marketeers, smuggling, uh, human trafficking. All kinds of crazy shit happens out there. And it's because it's this weird nexus point where three borders of three different countries meet. And it happens to be so remote from everything else that policing it is damn hard. Well, that's what's going on in the Kiris sector. Uh, and the fact that Starfleet and uh, the civilian organizations that the Federation was willing to sort of you know support in their missions out there, once all that help gets taken away... These people are just basically left to screw themselves. They're, they're like, um, you've taken the generators that we use for power, and you took the industrial replicators that we were using to build our town, and uh, you took all the medicine that we kind of needed here as much as they need there, and uh, you took the water. <laughs> what are you doing? And, but by that point, nobody's paying attention because they're all at Romulus. Which is hard, too, because, you know, we've seen that the Romulans didn't always want that help. And then you've got these people who do. And this really yeah. smacks of, you know, the Maquis. You know, it's like the Federation learned nothing from that. I mean, you, when you get like back to the power, The Federation is not good at learning from its yeah, mistakes. that's true. <laughs> yes. You know, so we, we've got here, you know, with the Fenris Rangers, and, and I very much... Um, kind of commiserate with seven i've i've got that i i don't act on on uh the these feelings i have of of injustice or anything but i sometimes i wish i could uh in some ways but um you know so i kind of envy her for her opportunities here but you know we've got this kind of maquis like group um but then there's also a lot of uh, the Rangers of the North from Lord of the Rings here too you know and just these groups of people that kind of help people that can't help themselves, I guess. Um, and then, you know, so I, I just, I, I love that because I just feel like we just didn't get enough of the Fenris Rangers really in Picard, like in the show to really kind of know exactly what they're about. We knew they were kind of, you know, um, good, you, the good guys, I guess, you know, out on the frontier, but, um, you know, when, when seven gets there, she, you know, like you mentioned before meets Keon and, gets on with him very well from the beginning and um she's so serious with him he's more funny and metaphorical and uses a lot of idioms and everything that she's got to kind of learn from and uh you know did that just kind of stem from just your writing you're like you wanted to play him off you like have her play off somebody so different from her kind of where, where did that come from i mean obviously if you're going to have two characters that are going to play off of each other it helps if they're very very different uh, a it makes it easy to differentiate their dialogue uh, when you're reading it on the page even if you're reading quickly it helps give them distinct voices and personalities and therefore points of obvious conflict um, and part of what i was just doing with keon harper is uh, i will often for a major supporting character i will pick an actor in my head who 
to me is like the embodiment of that character. If I were going to cast it today and I could pick anybody, I put this person in. Well, for Keon Harper, uh, I was thinking like Jeff Bridges, like he is in the old man on FX. <laughs> uh, but you know, he's just, he's got that way. He's got that gravelly presence. It's sort of down to earth. But, you know, there's always going to be that hint of the big Lebowski hiding somewhere behind it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is where you get lines like, you know, truth or comfort, kid. You know, you know he's like trying to tell us, kid, you can get yourself a big chicken dinner. She's like, a what? Bad conduct discharge. He's like, he's trying to explain <laughs> things to her. And, uh, and then, of course, like the great moment when she's asking, like, what's the name of his ship? What's his ship named after? And he's explaining, best dog I ever had. And she's like, dog yeah dog never had a dog did you she goes no trust me someday when you're ready get a dog you'll understand it so <laughs> i'm just that picture you know jeff jeff bridges i mean a little jeff bridges maybe a little sam shepherd somewhere in there uh you know just sort of the 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 funny gentle uh you know, wise old bearded guy, you know, sort of like your, your, your Western Ranger, almost your, uh, you know, your, your sort of classic archetype of this, uh, this weathered seasoned guy who just dispenses wisdom and weird little idiomatic bon mot. And, uh, this is, you know, basically how I picture him. And it made it just very easy to consistently write him. Cause once I figured that out, I'm like, I just slip into character and I'm like, what would that guy say? And if it doesn't sound like something that would come out of his mouth, I rewrite it. But the same token for Ellery Cade, I wanted her to feel quirky. Uh, I wanted her to feel charming, a little bit funny, but also a little awkward. Um, you know, like a little sort of a core of insecurity wrapped up, you know, totally wrapped up in competence, uh, uh, intelligence and charm. And so for her, I pictured Jessica Henwick. Uh, who played Colleen Wing in the Iron Fist uh, Marvel TV series. Um, you may have seen her as Bugs in Matrix Resurrections, where she had the blue hair. Uh, Jessica Henwick is just one of my favorite actors. I, I think she's wonderful. So for Seven's love interest, I picture Jessica Henwick as Ellery Cade. And for her mentor, I just had to go with Jeff Bridges for Keon Harper. The, um, uh, the, the book really seems to be based on this kind of spy uh, element because you have uh, Seven contacted by someone uh, from uh, Starfleet Intelligence who's has uh, oh, Starfleet Federation Security Agency. Federation Security, that's right. Uh, and it's uh, uh, basically off with a, a really nice offer. And you realize the offer is not, um, uh, not all it seems. How did that... Turning this, which it looks like it's uh, uh, more about the Rangers, but it's really more about Starfleet's machinations against the Rangers. How did that planning that all out go? Well, not Starfleet's machinations. The Federation Security Agency is a civilian agency. They're like the FBI. They're the Federation's civilian counterintelligence and internal domestic security and interstellar law enforcement bureau. It's a pretty big remit, but that's what they do. They are different from Starfleet Intelligence. Starfleet Intelligence is a military intelligence unit. They serve a very specific function for Starfleet. Civilian intelligence has to be handled by different agencies. Federation Security Agency is your internal agency, much like MI5 in Britain. Beyond this, 
There's probably also the Federation Intelligence Service, FIS. They're your foreign intelligence agency. They're the CIA of the Federation. And their remit is to only operate outside Federation territory. Or if they operate within Federation territory, it has to be under the auspices of a civilian oversight agency such as the FSA. So you got to remember there's different levels of what of who's in play here. And so we don't have Starfleet as the bad guys. Uh, what we have is FSA as this operation that's almost gotten too big for its britches to the point where it started to lose control of some of its people. You've got rogue operatives who have figured out how to embezzle from the organization how to steal enough resources to set themselves up in business as black marketeers, arms dealers, power brokers, exactly everything you don't want. Now, how much of this is actually sanctioned by the FSA and is going on as a cover operation? And how much of it is actually this guy going off the reservation? Well, we don't know. The FSA says he's a rogue operative and we disavow him completely. On the other hand, could he really have embezzled all that money and nobody noticed? Well, that's what they say, but how do you know? And you don't. But when he finally gets busted and taken down, they have no choice but to you know say, well, he's screwed, he's burned, prosecute him and throw him in a hole. We're done. The, uh, the Mardani so- stuff reminded me of um, Mission Possible Rogue Nation when the British are just so terrified of their own threat that they've created. You got it. There it is. And Rogue Nation was uh, obviously an influence on this. Uh, If you ever see my Spotify playlist of inspirational music for the book, the closing suite of music from Rogue Nation uh, is what inspired the finale of the book. Uh, Everything from, you know, Foggy Night in London, uh, the IMF, that's that's the climactic action sequence of the book. Um, and, uh, also I think Morocco chase is from rogue nation and that's from, that was the music that for me inspired the, the first meeting of Keon Harper and seven, which he basically saves his ass in the alley and they have to make a high speed escape under fire. Picture that happening to the music used for the Morocco chase. Uh, and so that was the inspiration there. A lot of music was swirling around in my head as inspiration while I wrote this. But yeah, so I mean, that's what's going on is you've got this you know, rogue operative. The way that all sort of came about was that originally in the early drafts of the story, uh, we took a more blatantly, you know, it was blatantly a, a criminal operation or whatever, but the Federation knew about it and was just trying to disavow it. And it was all going to come out and it was going to be this major black eye for the Federation. And Kirsten Beyer, who acts as the liaison between Secret Hideout which is the TV entity that makes the new shows and the novelists, all of us over here uh, at the tie-in working for Simon and Schuster. Well, Kirsten, in addition to her role as the co-creator of Star Trek Picard, the TV series, uh, oversees all the tie-ins based on the secret hideout shows. So she gets a lot of feedback and I'm glad she did because she was able to say, well, that's a step too far. It tarnishes the Federation too much too early She says the Mars event hasn't really happened yet. Um, So we're not really ready to see the Federation go down that 
kind of a heavy duty corrupt road. We're not really there yet and it's too soon. So that was why it got pulled back and layers of ambiguity got sort of attached to that. It's like, we're not ready to have that much negativity uh, attached to the Federation and especially not to Starfleet. Uh, it's also why there was originally in the you know early story outlines, a lot more animosity uh, on Seven's part towards Starfleet. And Kirsten asked me to sort of pull that back. Uh, and one other thing, one just very simple note that came in from Kirsten after my first outline uh, was that at this point in Seven's life, Seven does not kill anybody. She, she wanted to make it very clear. Seven cannot take anybody's life through this story. That's not where she is in her emotional development. Icheb has not happened yet. She is not yet on that, you know, that, that, that anger, that rage-fueled mission of revenge. That hasn't begun yet. She hasn't been triggered that way. She is still interested in justice. She still believes in what's right. Um, so she's not going to be a killer. She's going to want to be the daughter that Janeway would have wanted her to be. She's going to want to be the person who brings the bad guy to justice, not the one who shoots him in the alley. So I was like, okay, good note. And in fact, because of that note, and the, you would think, well, it doesn't that put a limitation on you. Actually, it was a great help. There's a big action sequence near the around the end of Act Two, uh, where on the starship graveyard, the bad guys, Aristu Mardani, also known as Errol Tazgul, he sends these four killer drones that are basically like gigantic rhinoceros-sized spiders that have like beam weapon cannons on their back. Uh, so they're basically these hunter-killer drones, and you find out they were specifically designed to kill Borg. So they've got like Omicron particle cannons that neutralize nanoprobes. They're fast. They're tough. They're, they're, they're stealthy. They're, they're hunters. They're just brutal machines. I wouldn't have ever come up with that. Originally, the idea was that they were going to send down a squad of commandos and Seven was going to have to fight the commandos. But there was no realistic way to do that fight in that scene and have any of the commandos survive because it wouldn't have made sense in the story. But then I would have been violating Kirsten's rule about not letting her kill anybody. So I said, how the hell do I get out of this? And that was when I realized, well, you don't let her kill people. You put her up against killer machines that are made to shred her. You know, you, you basically just put her up against an even more brutal, destructive foe. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, we're doing that. Once I came up with that, I'm like, this is going to work out really well. Because she can destroy all the machinery she wants. That's always fun. I think um, one of the things that I loved about the story, too, was the way in which, by seven, staying true in many ways to the principles that she was taught by Janeway and the crew of Voyager uh, are very classic Starfleet, uh, you know, Federation values. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, joining the Rangers, she actually creates this opportunity for a new partnership between the Federation and the Rangers yeah. um, because she allows Starfleet and the Federation to see that the Rangers aren't what they thought they were. And to me, that was an incredibly powerful thematic element that by staying true to what we know is true and good and right, we can actually make 
a difference. And one person in seven of nine makes mm-hmm. a big difference in this universe that is slowly spiraling to what we're going to get in, you know, the opening of Picard season one. Yeah. And plus she's also able to get past the paranoia on the Rangers part to get them to take a risk on working with Starfleet. So yeah, she gets Starfleet to put aside its prejudiced view of what the Rangers are. She gets through the Rangers paranoia and is able to say, you know, we have some common purpose. And if we work together, there are places Starfleet can't go things Starfleet can't get to, but we can, we can get them and give them to you, and then you can implement them in ways we can't. You have manpower, you have ships, you have capital ships. There are things you can do on with economies of scale that are beyond us, but there are areas of access that we have that you can't possibly get anywhere near. Put us together, we can get some real good work done out here. Yeah. That could Which also is, be, it, hell, that could be another book. Yeah. <laughs> Which it, it did feel like... It, it, <laughs> yeah, this is such great setup for another book because, you know, like you said, you have um, this this framing device, mm-hmm. um, which kind of creates this stinger um, where we meet a character we meet in Star Trek Picard season one, which seven is actually recruiting to the Fenris Rangers. And so was that a note that you had or was that always uh, was that character always the person always that there. seven was yeah always I always done I, I wanted I knew that I was gonna need a framing sequence that would ground us in Picard that we would recognize and so I wanted that opening sequence to be there in the bar on Fenris I'm picturing like a classic Fenris Ranger cop bar uh, I remembered from the backstory that we were told in season one of Picard that the whole thing with Bejazel happened because Bejazel came to seven on Fenris, posing as someone who wanted to become a Fenris Ranger, got seven talking, and seven unfortunately let slip information that put a target on each Hev's back. At that point, seven has become paranoid enough. If you look at the last chapter when she's talking with Bejazel, before she even knows Bejazel's name, She's paranoid enough that she will lie about her own abilities and lie that her own abilities have been suppressed and remain suppressed because of the Omicron particle beam she got hit by on Zira, even though that's not true. She's smart enough and savvy enough to lie about that on her own behalf, but she gets careless and she doesn't remember to cover for Echeb. And when she basically tells, you know, about how Echeb as a, an emancipated board drone has all these great abilities and he's being accepted now into Starfleet in a way that she never could have been yada, yada, yada. It sounds like she's saying something really nice and great about Starfleet, but what Bajazel hears is prime target each and seven doesn't realize that's what she's just done. She's protecting herself. She's not keen to the fact that she's failed to protect each So there's the seed of that. That's the moment of tragedy right there that she's going to look back on. The reader knows it. Seven doesn't. And that's why that moment stings. We're like, oh, no. Which, I mean, it just kind of highlights again how much she still has to learn about humanity, you know, to to use a broad term even for, you know, the aliens. But, you know, that she, I mean, when she was trying to save the people on, um, 
I just lost the name. Soraya. Yeah, on Soraya, like, she was trying to do good and made a mistake, and here she's trying to do, she's trying to throw Bejazel off the trail inadvertently. You know, she's just, she's not in that mind of a, you know, a villain, I guess, you know, like that. She's she's still fallible. She has developed some paranoia. She's not ruthless and paranoid enough. She's not shrewd enough. Even after five years as a ranger, there's still, you know, part of her that is not ready to accept that you cannot trust anybody out here. Everybody's working an angle. Everybody's a potential enemy. Everybody's going to potentially stab you in the back. She's not there yet. Uh, and it's when it's sadly, it's not going to happen until she loses each at that point. She's going to become the, the dark scourge. She's basically going to become the Batman of, of the Kira sector. The one who basically will see criminals in every dark corner and will basically commit herself to destroying every goddamn last one of them. I just i i i need a a moment then in in on television where she's like, "Because I'm seven. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. You really don't. You think you need that. <laughs> you want that, but you don't actually need that." <laughs> Um, I have a question of uh, production of the book. There are two things. One is you have the map, which, uh, you know, you didn't see too often in books, but it's happening more and more. And uh, here it's a star map. And uh, we also got it with the high country from John X. Miller. And then also there was the um, the decision to when you're talking about which series you're pulling from. You mentioned Voyager and Picard, but there's also the discussion of Prodigy, which gets referenced. How does how are those decisions made? Uh, is it is that something that the author decides we're going to include that stuff, or does that usually come from the editorial team? Well, I mean, it was one of those things where as I'm writing the story, uh, because I'd worked on Prodigy, I knew that those events were directly related to the end of Voyager. Uh, the Picard continuity had taken into account what had happened in Prodigy because those writers' rooms talk to each other and are coordinated partly by Kirsten Beyer. So I was like, okay, there's no point establishing a new ship or new officers if we already know that Janeway is going to have access to the Dauntless. Uh, and the Dauntless gives you Tysus and Asensia and Dr. Noom, all established characters who we know from Prodigy. So they were right there in the outline. I planned to use them from the very beginning, which is why if you look at the title page, we credit, you know, not only the creators of Star Trek Picard, but also Star Trek Voyager, because it's heavily based in Voyager. Uh, and then we had to credit Prodigy because we're using Dauntless and we're using Prodigy original characters. So we made sure to put them on the title page and give them their due. Um, but that's just one of those things where, you know, I, I see the connections between all the characters who live in the universe. Um, and it just, it came to me naturally. I'm like, well, if she's going to come to the rescue, she's coming on Dauntless. She's coming in a quick straight, uh, uh, quantum slipstream enabled starship. So that's just how that happened. As far as the star maps, uh, I put those there because John Jackson Miller said, if you've got a hardcover, you might as well push to do some maps in the front. I was like, really? He's like, it's like, yeah, it's the only time they'll let you do them. And fans love them. And you can use it as promo and press in the early you know, buildup. So he says, you should probably do some maps. I said, great. So I did them. Uh, unfortunately, I did not make my instructions as clear as I should have. 
right now, when you open it up, it looks like one big map. It's not. It's two different maps uh, with different levels of magnification. Uh, one sort of showing the first one on the left shows a closer view of the Kiris sector and the uh, systems that are particular within that and some of the others that are near it, like Utsira, Detroit, etc. The other one is a wider area map that shows the Kiris sector as a smaller bit in a wider area to give you the context of where it is in relation to free cloud, Zerat, Vol, and a couple of other places. They were supposed to be printed on either side of a single page so that you would have a right-facing page and there'd be one map and you'd turn the side and there'd be the other. They printed them facing each other. <laughs> and because of the weirdness of the curve of the Romulan neutral zone, it looks like one map but it looks like it's been screwed up somehow. Like the suddenly the, the grid lines don't match up and the Romulan neutral zone takes a weird curve. It's because they were never supposed to be on facing pages. But when I was looking at the page proofs that came in on PDF, I was looking at them one page at a time. I was looking at single page up because I was vetting one page at a time, one page at a time. If I had looked at them two pages up in a two page view, I would have seen that they put the maps on facing pages and I'd have fixed it. But as it was, I saw them one page up, one page up, and I thought, first page, second page. Never occurred to me that they put them on facing pages. Never occurred to me. And it's too late to fix. There's no point trying to change it now. Yeah. I'm just glad we get them. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like it's. I, it's, it's, I, it's I so, made them. Yeah. I've been making them. Yeah. That's so cool. That's so cool. What? Okay, this is totally like a geek uh, question for people who who love uh, art design. But did you make did you make them in like Photoshop or what? Photoshop. What program did you? End up, okay. What I did is nice. I took uh, scans of the original uh, sector grids, whatever, from Star Charts uh, by Jeffrey Mandel, and then I took them into Photoshop and I used those as a template. You know, the color scan. I put it on a base layer uh, and I faded it down to about. 10 or 20% just would be like a ghost image. And then I redrew the grid lines. So I redrew the grids and then I used curved line uh, path tools to rebuild the lines for the neutral zone. Uh, I did the same thing for a couple of other curved elements. And then uh, what I did is I made separate layers. I made a layer for just stars and using various sizes of the hard edge uh, pencil tool for the brush, round, hard edge, no fuzz, you know, no, no, no fade or whatever, just nice, nice crisp edges. And then I just figured out like what was the diameter. Uh, you know, the really big ones were apparently like a diameter of forty-three. Most of them were around diameter twenty-seven. Some of the really small ones were diameter fifteen. I figured out you have to use odd numbers, otherwise it doesn't uh, center well. So I just basically then went over. And I put new dots over everywhere that he had a dot where I needed to have something. Originally, I tried to replicate like all the elements, but then I realized that made the map too busy. Like originally, I had like all the epsilon stations and all that stuff. And eventually, I realized, well, I don't need that. I just want to show people in general, in relation to where we know the neutral zone is, and we know this star base and the Azure Nebula, in relation to all of this crap. Where is Utsira? Where's Atroya? Where is, Sor you know, uh, Soroyo? You know, where, where are we going to find that planet? Uh, where is Vol? Where is Free Cloud? 
uh, which required some mathematics. I, had, I did a whole thread about this on Blue Sky, uh, finding you know the correct position for free cloud. Did required a little bit of research, but you know I just dropped them in, boom, and then I had a whole separate layer of names of stars, and I had the names for canon stars in one list, and then the new ones that were my creations, uh, you know, that were going to be bolded. Uh, I had them in a separate layer just so I could easily turn layers on and off and see what I was doing. And so I built it all in layers, uh, made sure it was at like 300 PPI, uh, like full size, full page bleed. Um, I think it was a 16 bit grayscale image and uh, sent that in to the art director uh, and the production department at Simon and Schuster as TIFF files. See, this is, you know, this is what Star Trek authors are doing for you folks. They're not just creating I, I great care. works of literature. They, I care. <laughs> they're creating incredible works of art for you to enjoy uh, the book. So I, I, I love it. Like, I think it's so cool that uh, you would put all of that work into, you know, something that, you know, most people are like, oh, cool, a map, you know, and like, it, yeah, there's so much work that goes into this. Uh, so, I mean, I know I really appreciate and I think everybody who reads the the books appreciates when we have maps in there because it really does make a difference. And so, um, as always, you know, before we let you get out of here, um, what are the things that uh, we've got? Of course, Firewall, everybody needs to get a chance to get a copy of. But what else are the things that you've got in the fire or that you'd like people to know uh, that you've got coming up? And, of course, you know, if they wanted to connect with you, where are the best places to do that? Well, if you're looking for information about what work I have coming up and what's already out, you can just check my website, davidmack.pro. That's davidmack, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O. And there's a section called His Work, and you go in there, and there's books and short fiction, and that's where you'll find most of it. The newest stuff will be right on the front page, so you don't even have to look for it. As far as what I have coming up, over the course of 2024, most of it is going to be short fiction. I don't currently have any novels under contract, uh, so I don't know what the next novel I'm going to write is going to be or who it's going to be for or when it will be out. Um, I have an original idea I'm noodling on, but it's not yet ready to go out uh, on submission. Uh, I don't know if or when I'll write another Trek book. I'd like to, but the line is, as you probably noticed, uh, has become truncated somewhat. It is, it is much smaller than it used to be, so it's a little bit harder to get on the schedule than it was in the old days. Um, what I have coming out over the course of the year are six pieces of short fiction. Four of them are going to be in Star Trek Explorer magazine, uh, starting with issue 11, which I believe comes out on April 2. Uh, that's going to be a story called Dignified Transfer, set during the Stargazer era. And it's a, a dramatization of Jean-Luc Picard being tagged for what is known as escort duty, which in the military is what happens when you bring home you, you are the officer assigned to escort home uh the body uh of a fallen uh shipmate or officer or whatever this is him bringing home the body of jack crusher to beverly crusher and young wesley and all the sort of thoughts that go through picard's mind during the course of the journey um and one of the things thematically that i love about this story if you don't know what a psychopomp is a psychopomp is a mythological figure 
that escorts the spirits of the dead into the afterlife. And most faiths and most mythologies have some version of it. Uh, for instance, you know, there's the Grim Reaper, but in Norse mythology, you have the Valkyries. Uh, well, there's variations on this. And so a lot of the characters and a lot of the ships and planets and things throughout the whole story are named after various psychopomps from different mythology. Wawate, uh, Diana, uh, Vanth. Uh, there's, you know, basically an officer named Karen Vanth. Karen being, of course, a homonym for Charon. And then you have Vanth, which is another psychopomp in a different religion. So there's all these things. And of course, Picard himself in the story is serving sort of as a designated psychopomp in that he's escorting the body of Jack Crusher home to his final rest. So it's basically the, there's all this sort of thematic, symbolic stuff. <clears throat> the reason that story really kind of matters to me is that it's going to be uh, dedicated uh, and it's going to be in the print edition of the, of the magazine. It's going to be dedicated to my late father-in-law who died last year. Uh, and he was a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. And at one point, he'd been a senior Pentagon officer. Uh, so when I attended his funeral last May, it was a big military funeral. Um, and it was just one of those things that just made a, an incredible impression on me. So when I finally wrote this story, it was important to me that I dedicated it to him. And fortunately, my uh, editor, John Freeman, was amenable to that idea. And he liked the story enough that he put it in the print edition. Uh, and then I have, you know, coming out in issues 12, 13, and 14, uh, I've got a TNG movie era story called uh, Mem uh, Memoriam. I've got another one that is sort of timeless. It's a Will Wheaton as Traveler story, uh, Wesley Crusher as Traveler. Uh, that's called Family History. And then I have a Picard-based story called Freeblade. And if you've seen Picard, you can probably figure out what that story is. Um, and then I've got two original pieces of short fiction coming out in themed anthologies. Uh, one is an anthology called Combat Monsters. I don't know what the release date for that is. The premise is World War II, real battles, real engagements, but with the addition of mythological, supernatural, or otherwise, some kind of monster, some kind of creature, something uh, to introduce this element of the spectacular. Uh, mine is called Boxcar. B-O-C-K-S-C-A-R, which is the name of the aircraft that dropped the second atomic bomb, the one that was dropped on Nagasaki. Uh, let's just say that in the course of a mutiny aboard this aircraft, uh, which was based on all the real officers and real crew of the, sh uh, of the aircraft, uh, I, of course, find the perfect monster to tie into it and link it uh, all together. And then uh, there's a space Western anthology edited by David Boop. Uh, it's called Last Train to Kepler 283C. It's coming from Bain Books. It'll be released on November 5, which ominously enough is also election day. So the release date for that uh, anthology may or may not decide the future of democracy in the Western world. Uh, but hopefully you can distract yourself by picking up this really cool anthology that will contain my short story, Living by the Sword, which can be non-spoilery described as a young girl who dreams of adventure meets an old female gunfighter who urges her toward a better destiny. Uh, and then last but not least is a piece of related uh, work related to Star Trek. There's an academic book coming out from McFarland uh, called Strange Novel Worlds, and it's a series of essays about Star Trek fiction. 
uh, licensed fiction, fan fiction, different stories. Uh, some of it is by scholars. Some of the pieces are by authors. My article is called uh, Official But Not Canon, The Tie-In Writer's Dilemma. And it is about the profession of writing Star Trek tie-in novels from the point of view of someone who has done this professionally for 20 years. And it goes into you know, sort of a discussion of what is the difference between the definitions and meaning between canon, continuity, official, and quality? Because these four terms are not synonymous. And so we dive into that. We go into the history of uh, Star Trek franchising and copyrights and this and that and the other thing. And we really sort of dig deep and we talk about, you know, the issues that brought about the end of the 20 year long literary experiment that came to an end in, uh, in CODA back in 2021 uh, and how this was brought about by Picard, et cetera. That'll be out on April 28th, again, from McFarland Books. It's called Strange Novel Worlds, and it's edited by Caroline Isabel Karen and Kristen Noon. Man, that's that's awesome. And that one specifically just sounds incredibly fascinating for everybody who enjoyed the lit verse for so long. And so I'm I was writing that down. I'm like, it's a weird thing to, I, to I, read I, that the, one. I, I've never actually had to write academic an academic paper before with citations. Mm. I've never had to do like an actual research paper about Star Trek before. So oh, it's awesome. So, so this is just, it's written like an academic essay. When I was in college, I asked if I could write a, uh, uh, an essay or two on tie in fiction because I wanted to, because that was something I was reading a lot and wanted to write about. And it was so hard to find academic essays on tie in fiction. Um, and also in even more hard to find actual books on the subject. And in the last, and since I've left college in the last two or three years, we've had a ton of, uh, books on tie in fiction come out. So that's really nice that we're finally starting to see that literature come out that can help us, uh, be able to write academic stuff on it. Cool. That's awesome. Well, David, I love, uh, one that you've got so much coming out for people to check out. And of course, I think we all hope and pray that you're going to be having more Star Trek books come out because you, you, you really do. You never disappoint. And, uh, thank you so much as always, uh, for giving us your time. It means a lot to us here at literary tracks. Um, and, uh, guys go get Star Trek Picard firewall. Thanks man. Well, guys, that was a really great interview. I love having the authors on the show, especially, you know, well, especially all of them. But, you know, when, you know, somebody like David comes on and, and has so much to say about the book, it, it kind of makes our jobs very easy. And, uh, you know, we get so much insight into it. And yeah, I just, I, I can't wait for more from, from him to, you know, just get off, getting off of this book. And, uh, I, I want, I want more. I want to know what happens to Ellery. I want to know what happens with other, other characters here. So ho hopefully there's more in the future. And I think that um, uh, he does. A, he did a good job of leaving open potential for the future. He didn't mm -hmm. fill in all of Seven's time through the whole time that she was in the Fenris Rangers. You only get a sliver of it. So that's maybe another Picard novel down the line. Maybe maybe we'll have bring in other authors. Maybe maybe Kirsten or someone else will eventually one day come back. So I hope I hope I'm also hoping. Just need to buy lots of copies of the book so that yeah. you know, Simon and Schuster know to yeah. to keep mm -hmm. making them. Yep. I would love, I think you mentioned something there, Jonathan, that I would love to see 
And that's absolutely to have Kirsten come back uh, and do, you know, novels uh, in, in this era. And I know she's super busy and I, I don't mm-hmm. think that's ever really going to happen. Yeah. But I think it would be phenomenal just because, of course, you know, she has so much to do with this this series and specifically these Voyager characters. I mean, uh, nobody wrote those characters better than her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody, you know, made me love this, the, the series of Voyager like she did. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it, it's disappointing that unfortunately, I don't know if that'll ever happen, but this was so much fun. I'm so glad that David got a chance to join us. Of course, you know, if you would like to contact us or get in touch with us, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, we're on uh, Instagram and Twitter and uh, Facebook, all at Trek FM. You can also find us online at Trek.FM. You could join us on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Trek FM and make sure all the shows keep coming to you each and every week with our social producers here, Casey Pettit, as well as Greg Rosier. Uh, we really appreciate that because that means that we can keep all of this content coming to you each and every week. But um, gentlemen, if people wanted to catch up with you and see what you've got going on outside of Literary Treks, where can they find you? Well, you can find me uh, pretty much anywhere-ish um, on Goodreads, Letterboxd, uh, Twitter, and Instagram at Knitting Trekkie. Uh, you can also find me poking around in the Babel Conference on Facebook from time to time. Uh, and you can also follow along with my reading journey on my new blog called BookBusterReviews.com. And uh, it's not anything in particular. I do like uh, books that have been adapted into film, hence the name BookBuster. Uh, but uh, pretty much anything I'm reading, it's it's my own little uh, way to kind of keep myself honest with what I'm reviewing and, and, and actually writing full reviews. So check me out there. And how about you, Jonathan? And you can find me. Uh, my main hub is YouTube. I have my YouTube channel where I talk all things books, Star Trek, Star Wars, and otherwise. Um, and that's just my name, Jonathan Cohn, last name K-O-A-N. And then you can also find my Twitter account, uh, at Jonathan Cohn, where I talk about mostly book stuff, but also some film and TV stuff. Um, uh, and then, of course, I'm on Goodreads, and my Goodreads user is Jonathan Cohn. And you can find me all over social media under the name Matt Rushing02. Of course, you can also find me on the 602 Club, which uh, we're talking about all of those franchises we love outside of Star Trek. You can also find me doing Warp 5, The Orb, the Artificial Tango, and Saddle Up. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number 